to I Spin on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we are discussing the terrifying and fascinating subgenre of possession horror. The movies that are up for discussion are The Exorcist and The Last Exorcism. So pick your poison, listen on, if you dare. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! So, Kelly, why did we choose these films? So, when it comes to possession horror, I think one of the obvious choices is The Exorcist. And overall, we try to do a modern film with an older, more classic film, and we kind of can contrast and compare them within the the themes of what we're going to be talking about. Yes, like I said, when it comes to possession horror, I feel like you would have to talk about The Exorcist. There's been a lot of study on it. It's an absolutely fantastic movie to, to analyze. And then... The last exorcism I chose personally because I had seen it before because I thought that there was that the exorcists and last exorcism shared a lot of let's say the same DNA, different films mm. in a lot of different ways, but also quite similar in a lot of a lot of different ways. So I thought that they would be a wonderful pairing of a classic possession horror movie and a more modernized version. Then we can kind of see where have things really changed that much, or you know, or have they? Yeah, very true. And I will agree. The Exorcist is, well, it was a blockbuster film. It was, it is the film that defines the subgenre of demonic possession and horror. And so, of course, we had to talk about this film. And everyone has a story that is related to The Exorcist that we'll get into later. So I agree when we decided that we were going to do demonic possession for the month of October, it was like, obviously, The Exorcist. We need to talk about The Exorcist. And yeah, The Last Exorcism, I have never seen it. Um, we'll get to discussion how I've avoided possession horror films for the majority of my, I guess you'll say, horror career or life in general for multiple <laughs> reasons. But so that's why I left the ball in Kelly's court for her to decide what's the second film we're going to do that releases exorcisms because I don't really watch them. <laughs> Thank you for trusting me. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's always not the best thing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Watch out. So the first thing we're going to get into is why women? We've come to learn that the vast, vast majority of possession films, they're focused on, or at least the central figure of these films are the possessed woman. And we wanted to look at why there's so many women being possessed in horror. Yeah, and that was so interesting. I remember when we had this discussion, choosing this topic, we're like, women are always the ones that are becoming possessed. And so, yeah, the big question is, why women? And I have to say, like, this month was fascinating in my research about looking up um, information about demonic possession, about, you know, the centralization of women in demonic possessions, various case studies. And one of the things that I stumbled across that I definitely was attracted to right away was talking about the close relationship of demonic possession to witchcraft. Surprise there, everyone. The witch is going to talk about witchcraft. So there's actually a really interesting close relationship and yet differences to demonic possession and witchcraft, which I'm going to talk about right now. 
So when we look at demonic possession, it is uh, considered the alleged occupation of a demon in a person's body. And when this person has complete loss of control of their physical and mental function, so they, ha they are not responsible for the actions because the demon is making them do that. Whereas witchcraft is seen as a means to inflict harm or misfortune on others through magic that was obtained by signing a pact with the devil. Women who have sexual congress with the devil, they become witches, and this is allows them to become possessed. However, we've been seeing that there has been a blurred line between being a witch and being a possessed person. And while demonics, or a demonic cuz, as they say, are the demonics, they're actually seen as being pitied where witches are feared and abhorred. So, one of the main differences, and I'm gonna go into a lot of history about this, one of the main differences between being a, uh, accused of being a witch and being accused of being demonically possessed was that those who are demonically possessed are not held criminally responsible for what they do when they are possessed, where women who are accused as witches have been tried and executed for their supposed actions. If they were to persecute someone who was demonically possessed, it would be seen as they were persecuting the devil themselves and they felt that no secular or, or religious court could actually have that jurisdiction to condemn the devil. They just, you can't do that. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> witches who are caused of either causing demonic possession or they're demonically possessed, but they're still performing as witches, they're seen as vessels that were guiding the devil's hand into doing all his evils on earth. So women who were predominantly objects of witchcraft accusations um, as the church dogma dictated that they were vulnerable to temptations because women had weaker bodies, which made us susceptible to possession. So one of the really interesting things in my research is that there are many large cases of demonic possession, but at the same time too, a lot of people believe that these demonic possessions were caused by the activities of the witch. So one of the interesting things is that Witch hunting, it began in the 15th century and then it peaked in the 1580s to the 1630s. And at the same time too, the number, a large number of demonic possession cases were also recorded during this time period as well from the 15th century and they peaked in the 16th and 17th centuries. So one of the connections is that was, there was an increase in Catholic writings about uh, witchcraft and demonic possession. Gairo Lamo, and he wrote uh, a treatise about that the world was under a demonic assault and that witches were assisting in the, uh, this onslaught of the devil taking over the world. And also, Dominican Inquisitor Sebastian Michaelis, who was a successful witch hunter, also wrote about the rise of demonic possession and linked them very closely to the, witch that he, the work that he did as a witch hunter himself. So one of the interesting things is that demonic possession holds the same legal status as insanity. So many people who were actually mentally, were, could be considered mentally unstable were actually considered demonically possessed during this time. By being accused of being demonically possessed, they couldn't be held responsible for the crimes. And so this allowed them to subvert uh, legal actions. However, if it was found out that you were faking any symptoms of demonic possession, you were accused of being a witch. So this is where the line between being accused of being demonically possessed and being a witch had become blurred. And this is because supposedly humans have a close relationship with demons and which allows, uh, allows for women to normally be tempted by demons and thus into the form of witchcraft. So in the 15th century, there were several cases of women becoming possessed and they, either be, they were either declared of being demonically possessed or a witch, or being demonically possessed by a witch. 
In my research, I found lots of case studies about various women who were accused of being demonically possessed and either being seduced by a witch or being demonically possessed and being a witch themselves or um, they were women who were demonically possessed and it was because of a witch and there's all these interesting connections. But the one case that really stuck out to me was the possession case of Madeleine de Mendois in Marseille, France. And this came from a case study based on an article called A Notorious Woman, Possession, Witchcraft and Sexuality in the 17th Century Provenance, written by Anita M. Walker and Edmond H. Dickerman. And they talk about the case of Madeline, where at the age of 18, she was an Ursuline novice um, in, a in a convent with a bunch of nuns, and she accused her former confessor, Louis Gottfrieda, a parish priest, of seducing her by causing her to be possessed, and he took her to witches' sabbaths. And based upon her confession, he was convicted for witchcraft and then burned alive in 1611. So her possession case of Madeline is an interesting phenomenon because the church at the time ended up using her case to show how a possessed girl could be freed from demonic pose possession that was brought to her by sexual congress with the Bishop of Uzi, who was considered a magician that seduced her, um, but also she was seen as a repentant witch. So because she said, oh, I was, um, because she saw signs of demonic possession, she had said, well, I was also, this was happened because this guy was a witch and he tricked me and he seduced me and I went to Sabbaths and I joined. And because the church was like, okay, here's our opportunity to show how this woman was led astray, but because she was demonically possessed, we healed her through exorcism, but she's also a repentant witch. So we've also been able to turn a witch around and not follow uh, the life of uh, shame more sin. One, why this case is so interesting is because the priest that she accused of having her be demonically possessed and accused of being a witch, he had also been involved with other cases where nuns all of a sudden became possessed and also accused mm. him of witchcraft. So it was actually, it was a big case in France at that time. Mm. What also makes it really interesting is that at the age of 18, while she was exercised and she repented as a witch, later in her life, um, as an old woman, she herself was accused of causing demonic possession of other young women, particularly the daughter of a local, who they believe was first hexed by Madeleine. But when she began to vomit feathers and speak in the name of a senior demon, another one called Belzebub, this was revealed during this young girl's exorcism. So they, so Madeleine, who was once supposedly demonically possessed, later on was accused of being a witch almost 42 years later. So what was interesting is that during this time period, the phenomena of possession in societies were built off of a lot of religious tradition and distrust of the body, which allowed externalization of sexual attraction to give in to the pleasures of flesh was abhorrent and better to say one was possessed instead of violating one's spiritual vocation. And this is because Madeline, it was actually in their article, they talk about how she was actually in love with Godfrey and she was actually having a relationship because she was so young and didn't understand that and it became in conflict with her own religious convictions when it was revealed that she had actually had engaged in sexual relations with this man. She rather really showed that she was demonically possessed and was seduced by him than to be discovered to have broken any, soul, uh, any sacred vows. So this is why uh, Madeline, when she accused him of uh, Godfrey of witchcraft and, and causing her to become be possessed, this allowed her to be able to protect herself, but only at the time, because by claiming she was demonically possessed, it was actually safer for women in the 15th and 17th centuries to say that they were demonically possessed than to be accused of being a witch. That is sad, but makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
And this is just like the tip of the iceberg. I'm like, I had to like cut so much down to <laughs> talk about this because there was so much about relating possession with uh, being a witch and witchcraft. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure eventually we're going to hear about and talk about hysteria. Yes, yes. <laughs> because I feel like as I've learned, there's a lot of this shit that is interconnected. It's woven together throughout the, you know, the last hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So to carry on into this whole uh, idea and concept of why women in possession films, there's three kind of main resources that I used. Uh, one of them is Carol Clover's book, Men, Women's and Men, Women, and Chainsaws. So Carol Clover, you know, she states that women are portals. From Eve and onwards, there is you know, this foundation of religion that comes down to, like Jess was saying, a reason why women are most often seen as possessed. So from even onwards, Satan has been able to, you know, get all up in us because we are gullible, we are weak. We're easily possessed. Uh, She states, quote, satanic possession is gendered feminine because we're impressionable or emotionally open that genders us feminine and then our emotional openness is then represented as our female body being just literally open Mm -hmm. and just coming down to it we have holes that are open like our vaginas the actual openings that allow us to become possessed you know menstruation is a sign of changes and there's power going on inside of us we have natural passages quote to an inner space so we are naturally enterable. Overall, Carol Clover thinks that there is this dual narrative when it comes to possession stories. There's a male side and there's a female side. But for the sake of this episode, we're just focusing 100% on the female experience, the side of the female in these stories. And possession films, possession stories, quote by Carol Clover, is a body story with vengeance. Mm. And at a glance, these films can be seen as what happens when a woman strays off the normal female path away from male control. So not all films follow this exactly, but a lot of them do. Our female, quote, inner space is a place of terror, of horror. It's something to be exposed, denied, fixed, filled, colonized, detoxified. But of course, it's also a place of absolute curiosity and desire. Yes. Hello, priests and witches and everything, talking about sex all the time. Yeah. They're curious about us. They're, you know, the men are interested in us, but it comes down to, again, the monstrous feminine. So the other resource that is huge in the study of possession horror and the female experience is the monstrous feminine by Barbara Creed. And she had stated that there are two ways of interpreting sin. One is in relation to God's will. The other is in relation to the desire of the flesh. So, quote, the brimming flesh of sin belongs, of course, to both sexes, but at its root and basic representation is nothing other than feminine temptation. That's where this all began. So in her view, the definition of sin or abjection is something that comes from within, opens up to position the woman as deceptively treacherous. We appear pure and beautiful on the outside, but evil may generally live inside us. 
It's that stereotype of feminine evil. We're beautiful on the outside, but cor- corrupt on the inside. That is popular within, you know, the patriarchy. We're evil by nature. Mm. <laughs> uh, all human societies have a conception of the monstrous feminine that describes the fear of castration, women as witches, and the portrayer of sin and unholy desire. The other reference is so fantastic. The article is titled, Who Possesses Possessed Women? Women and Female Bodies as Territories for Male Interference. So to summarize that article, and of course, all of our references and notes and articles will be put in the Spinster's Library. So keep your eyes up on that. So the basic summary of that article is that, quote unquote, possessed women condense the idea of order subversion through the disorder of the soul and the body men assume the position as the keepers of social order reversing chaos to restore normalization in society which are related with female bodies and sexualization women's chaotic and disruptive behaviors must be corrected by the male order and male experts from different disciplines of knowledge that recreate social norms our priests doctors and we'll see a lot of this in the movies we're going to talk about There's a duality when we're discussing topics like good and evil, normality and deviation, like male-female, masculine-feminine. And this article um, wanted to disrupt that dominating aspect of maleness and those types of things. So when it comes to possession, of course, it's linked to evil and is related to the contamination of the woman's soul. She needs to be saved. She needs to be helped. And this can be seen as mental illness, Mm -hmm. hysteria. And transformations of the body are linked to sexuality. It affects the body and the mind. Possession is considered perverse and quote-unquote polluting. Abject, which I will definitely get into later. So patriarchy has divided the sexes. There's female and male into these two categories. And men are the leader or the dominant position in that. Women are subordinate, which completely erases our agency. And it permeates all of our society which is also, you can see that in heteronormativity. And if we go back to the monstrous feminine, possessed women pull together all aspects of being other. Another common concept we will regularly talk about. Uh, The woman pollutes, we're different, and we're a monster. Separated from all that is normal. Because again, men are the social leaders. All of our values are based on them because they are the foundation. They represent order and normativity. Uh, the patriarchy. Again, another thing we'll talk about a lot. But we they see sexu- female sexuality as impure and dangerous. It's the source of disorder and contamination. The consequences of the subordination of women. That has constructed an ideal of women, which has always been linked to the goodness and beauty, like the Virgin Mary. And when we don't fit into these little boxes and these roles, socially or religiously, we're seen as threatening the normal order of things. And a quote from the article. Uh, We become the threatening other related to sin, monstrosity, and anomaly. Anomaly. Therefore, men have to protect themselves from the female nature because of the dangers of pollution. So once our bodies and minds have been restored to the, quote, normal order of things by men, by our priests, by doctors, by whomever that are experts in us, um, that demonstrates the balancing out who is dominant, which are men, and who are subordinate, which are us, women. We need to be seen as perverse or sexually active for them to feel superior so that they can control us. So that overall is why we see at least one reading of why we see so many women 
shown as possessed in possession horror. I had There's many different reasons. Yo, oh, yeah, go no, ahead. No, sorry, I'm just like I had so many thoughts while you were talking about that about like well then if women are so evil, why do why do men become so attracted to us? Like, you know, what is it about? You know, why women? If men feel like they always have to kind of control us in all ways. And I yeah, and the, the fact that I love how you brought up this idea or the concept that whenever a woman seems to find a sexual power within herself or intelligence or find some kind of rationale to be able to stand up for herself we we portray that as oh you're mentally ill you're demonically possessed or if you have some form of history or you're a witch we have to use some means of exorcism or yeah. execution to purify you to subdue you and bring you back under our control thanks patriarchy thank you and honestly and maybe this is a common sense i don't know but man patriarchy and all this shit comes back to religion thousands of years ago this all began and it's just like cross-generational nonsense that's how i feel so now we're going to get into our first movie we're going to talk about which is the exorcist Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope, the only hope, the exorcist. <laughs> so I saw The Exorcist when I was probably 10 years old, and it goddamn absolutely terrified me. <laughs> Paralyzed with fear, reduced me to tears. Oh. It was a whole bunch of us young girls at one of those epic sleepovers in this room. So one of my childhood friends lived out in Sturgeon Falls area, like out off like out in the woods, okay, out in the yeah, boons, yeah. as we would say, like outside of my hometown, Jess's hometown as well. And this big house in the middle of the woods. And she had this beautiful room. So it had two openings. There was like from the kitchen into it. It's like this tiny little like circular room with a couple of stairs going down. It was like this little library. Then the other side opened up into this like formal sitting area that nobody used because who uses those? 
And it was horrifying because everything was open and like the carpeting was red. There's a bunch of windows with the trees everywhere. And I watched The Exorcist for the first time and almost peed my pants. Oh my god! All of us girls were screaming and crying and horrified. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because The Exorcist, I remember growing up, was considered a rite of passage of our of our youth, right? That everyone oh, yeah. at some point talked about going to a sleepover and seeing The Exorcist and being terrified about <laughs> it the next day. Like, I remember hearing about it in grade seven and eight, like girls having sleepovers and watching The Exorcist, and they tell me about it. I'm like, oh, dear God, I'm never going to watch this. No way. <laughs> Which leads to my story. <laughs> so, so many, many, many years ago, back in university, uh, and Kelly was still living in North Bay at the time before she went away to vet school, she would do this thing where around her birthday, or on the 13th, we would always do something because it would be like, you know, her birthday's on the 13th in October, and sometimes usually when it's close to like the Friday the 13th, um, we would do something. And I remember... It was my first year of university. Kelly wanted to watch The Exorcist. And it was, so it was me, Kelly, and her, my ex-girlfriend at the time sitting in our apartment getting ready to watch The Exorcist. And I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to make th- make us through this movie. And I didn't. I literally got 20 minutes into it. Nothing's happened yet. Literally just the tubular bells playing. And I was freaked out. I just couldn't do it. I had to like <laughs> leave the room. And they kept watching. And I just couldn't handle it. I had to put headphones on and everything. Um, I remember you actually bailing during the Israel part. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you bailed within the first five minutes. I bailed quickly because to me, I was just like, just the concept of watching a film about demonic possession had me in such a fit that I'm like, I can't watch this. Like, it just, I just can't. Um, So really, I didn't see it until like I was 32. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I watched it at the Mayfair Theater here in Ottawa at one of their showings. They show it at Halloween every year, so I went and I saw it in theaters. And it was a different experience for me because I found it scary, but not too scary. But I was also in a theater full of a bunch of people, and there were some, like, rowdy teenagers. So it just took the experience out for me. And I've watched it. Actually, I watched it again. I hadn't watched it until, like, recently for the podcast. And, yeah, it's a creepy film. Even now, it holds up with that creep factor. I definitely think it does. And, you know, it's interesting because I definitely made fun of you a million years ago, but I can now understand why. (laughs) (laughs) I can now really understand your absolute, like, hesitation because now I know all the background information about you and your life and your family (laughs) that it makes sense. And now I feel kind of bad. So okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you at least finally watched it. Yes. (laughs) So things that I like about The Exorcist. So many things. It is in my top five horror movies of all time. Up until recently, it was my favorite horror movie of all time. Mm. It definitely is an absolute horror classic. I love the premise I love the practical effects. I love the realism in it and the story behind it. I love the score. I love the theme. I love just how horrifying it is. Like, it doesn't, I can watch it now, but I still cringe and I kind of just like, ugh. Many parts that there's still that like nostalgia of fear in my brain uh, about it. So it's still creepy, but I can still watch it. Yeah. And I love the acting. It's just so fantastic in that movie. 
uh, Ellen Burstyn, Jason Miller, Linda Blair, Mercedes, who I forgot to check the name of, but the woman who actually did the possessed Reagan voice, who did so much work that's, I think, uncredited for, and it's amazing. Also, that attic jump scare. (laughs) (laughs) That always gets me. It's just, it's so quiet, and it's just, it's... It always gets me. Also, I think Drunk Burke is hilarious. He's a racist, but I think he's really funny. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> How about you? What do you like about it? Um, no, I do like this film. It's one of those classics that... It is so, everyone knows how much I like atmospheric films. It is very (laughs) atmospheric. It definitely really relies a lot on the atmosphere of things happening and things changing so suddenly and just that that constant fear of not understanding what's going on and how to deal with it. I found it like, I love the score as well. I love the scenery. I love how it's like this beautiful fall time in Washington. And so it makes everything seem so surreal. Like you're just like, this is such a beautiful place that they're living in. How could this this happen in such a household, right? Like that all this evil that's being contained. It is very classic, like you said, it's does very well with its um with its scares and making you feel unsettled as you're watching the film and you want to continue understanding what is going on and everyone does a wonderful job in maintaining their parts especially because like there's in researching the film this film there were so many things in terms of like things that were happening around the in the set like apparently the set of the exorcist was cursed mm-hmm. and that all kinds of weird things were happening which added to that mm-hmm. um atmosphere to the film that kind of fear that people didn't even want to say like demonic possession when they're filming things and so i think it was definitely like one of the reasons why i like it i can definitely see why this would terrify young children growing up because it is an adult horror film like it's not something that as children you should recommend watching however we do consider it a rite of passage into horror so definitely so what are your dislikes is there anything you dislike uh as a movie nothing it is scary it's moving it's powerful it's beautifully made after learning so much about possession horror it doesn't mean i don't like this movie but i look at it differently and i find it very sad and and deeply unsettling as an adult for different reasons that i think we'll, we'll definitely get into later but it's just it's interesting to see watch films as an adult that you loved as a child or at least a teenager because with all the experience and life that we have and everything we know and we're now wise so to speak yeah you know it just you just see things differently maybe we're cynical it's just the <laughs> life experience that you can just relate to people more i could never relate to reagan or anybody else in the film but now as an adult i see myself you know relating to chris mcneil yeah. you know as as an example so it's horrifying and now i find it just really sad yeah. it's a sad sad movie and i will 100 agree with you like watching the film and knowing what we know now you're just like oh it's a, it's just a film about good and evil and once again it just shows how the patriarchy it has to be there to save women when they're left on their own right and then we're going to talk about that further on but i will definitely agree that as an adult woman watching that film it, there are some elements of it that I dislike because it's like, oh shit, that once again, we just kind of see this oppressiveness placed upon us again. Yeah. For me though, like in terms of like outside of other dislikes, uh, so two things. 
One thing I don't, I dislike is that I've seen two different versions of this film, apparently with like scenes cut out and stuff like that. And yeah. one thing that I don't like is I don't like the spider walk scene. Mm. And not because it freaks me out, but because it takes away from the film. Like, I feel like I've seen the film without that see that scene been cut yeah. out. And I actually enjoy that more because it doesn't seem... It, I don't want to say it feels comical. It just feels too fantastical, right? Mm. And then mm-hmm. when you watch it and you actually see it and you're like, oh. And it just it happens yeah. so quickly that I'm just like, oh. It just doesn't seem to sit right in the film. So that, in terms of that with mm-hmm. the additions and the attractions from the film. And then the, also the other thing is that, so I ended up reading the book myself mm-hmm. uh, this past summer, and I actually enjoyed the book a lot. It was actually, the book itself was actually creepy, and it's because they don't focus too much on the actual exorcism itself. And mm-hmm. like, it's an element in the book, but like there's, the, they definitely in the movie added more scenes of the possession than mm-hmm. they do and they have in the book and whereas in the book it is more implied yeah. which makes it more um, interesting and, and creepy and scary and then there's also more elements in the book that blur the lines between demonic possession and actual hysteria so it makes mm-hmm. you you keep questioning is she demonically right. possessed or is it really just hyster- hysteria and so it's like this really interesting thing so I can understand why they made the changes they did in the movie especially because when you end up finding out in his research that for the majority of its uh, production it was being funded by the Catholic Church mm-hmm. <laughs> and a mm-hmm. lot so there was a lot of say about kind of certain things that were being added in and the only time the Catholic Church retracted any support to it is when the scene with Reagan masturbating with the cross was released mm-hmm. and they're like oh wait we don't want to support this but there was definitely yeah. those heavy elements to Blatley's uh, writing and his work when it came mm-hmm. to that. Yeah I've seen every iteration of this movie possible saw the 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 version you've never seen when it came out in theaters a million years ago. I've seen literally all of them. I agree on the spider walk. Uh, I haven't read the book in probably 20 years, so I have no comments on that necessarily. But the uh, the book is great, I think. Yeah, it is. So I do recommend folks giving it a read. So now we're going to get into the, the movie a little bit more deeply. So speaking of William Peter Blatty who's super fucking religious that I didn't really know until I read an article on him recently. Um, And, you know, so it's interesting. The original story of the exorcist, we probably so many of us know this was actually based on a boy, not a young girl. It was a boy. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting, you know, change up when it comes to the overall story. So talking a little bit more, going back to Carol Clover a little bit, you know, possession films take the woman into monstrous territory. They become quite horrific, right? Especially Reagan. Damn. I don't think I've seen a a possession movie that has gone to such extremes to show how, well, monstrous and the the transformation of, of the woman or the person undergoing this this possession one of the many reasons why i like the movie um and it just the women kind of turn into their possessor which are usually like these male demons these male entities and reagan becomes unrecognizable i remember there and i don't think i've even noticed this before but when i watched it for the podcast there was carl which is one of the housekeepers yeah i believe it's when chris finds the cross in under reagan's pillow and she comes out to, to question him about it and uh he's like 
it wants no straps or something like that. You know, maybe I'm mixing up the scenes, but either way, the more post, most important thing is that he called her an it. She has transformed so much that she is no longer she or Reagan, more importantly, um, but she is an it, which I can understand because she just is not herself. Yeah. Ugh. She just gives me nightmares. Um, but then, you know, usually in these possession films, especially with Reagan, you know, they show a very masculine, masculine traits, a deep voice. They're aggressive. They all of a sudden have this crazy supernatural strength, or at least they have more of a strength than a 12 year old girl does, you know? So it takes them to these absolute, dis- you know, extremes. Reagan turns in this disgusting, foul mouthed creature. She's horrifying to witness. Barely anyone can be in the room with her because she is nightmare inducing. And signs of possession or our monstrosity are things like the spider walk, uh, the contortion of the body, weird things that give me the Wiggins all the time. Like that's the thing about possession. Once they start doing weird things with their bodies, I'm out. I'm out. The twisting of the head. Yep. Twisting of the head. Their bodies are like doing this arching of their back. I'm like, that is not a natural thing unless you're like a contortionist. Still weird though. I can't watch them. (laughs) Uh, but like the female body and the mind becomes distorted which you know like we said threatens the normal order of things and you know reagan's behavior becomes pretty abnormal not only does she start looking gross um she starts swearing you know she when you meet her she's this like sweet baby face 12 year old girl she's very innocent demure you know fights her mom for a cookie and it's just like the most heartwarming scene in the beginning then later she starts going through all of those horrific tests and she's screaming at the doctor she's like i don't want it and in the director's cut there is a scene that they expanded upon which the doctor is saying that like you know does she normally swear and, and chris is like no she doesn't swear and so what she says to the doctor is keep your fingers away from my goddamn cunt and i was like Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine in 1973, a 12 year old girl saying cunt? Yeah. I love that word. But it's just like, it's just Chris laughs, which I think is hilarious in this movie. She's so lovely. But, you know, she totally just turns into this thing that you would not expect. Totally abnormal in so many different ways. So I want to go back to that who possesses possessed women. Uh, so the McNeil home lacks. A masculine figure. So it has Reagan, the mom, it has the nanny, Sharon, uh, and the two housekeepers. But generally it's those three women that we see around. That's not following the normal order of things. So their household gets threatened by the devil and of course produces absolute chaos. And we, what we have are our masculine figures, which is mainly Father Karras and Father Marin, who come in They represent order, normalization, and they will reverse the chaos. And they're the ones that perform the exorcism. And the priests are pretty much the focus of the movie. In the end, they they move along the action. They save the family from immorality, chaos or the devil, illness, which, you know, could be seen as evilness. And this is one of the biggest things that I took away from watching The Exorcist and doing the research is... These possession films show women a lot of the time. They show them kind of as unknown, agentless, passive women, young women. We don't know a lot about them. 
We don't necessarily know why they're becoming possessed or what's going on, because that's not actually the point of the movie, especially with The Exorcist. And again, looking, this kind of blew my mind learning more about this, because this movie has been in my life for 25 years, and not really even noticing this kind of element to it. But our male figures, especially Father Karras, He's very interesting. He's well-rounded. He's an active care, uh, character. He's an active person in The Exorcist. And these are the men. Like, they have to heal these women. And we know just so much about these men. We don't know much about these women, except for very superficial things. We definitely don't know much about Reagan. And I just... I, really bothers me you know you know you find out so much about father Karras. he's a psychiatrist he's got this elderly sick mother and she dies he's got a crisis of faith and it's like this whole thing and we also can see this in the last exorcism which we'll talk about later but we don't know much about nell not very much yeah we end up finding out more about her father and definitely more about the priest that comes to do the exorcism on her i was just thinking like yeah you're so right the exorcist watching it now than in from instead of watching it like so many years ago it has totally different meanings right and it's really interesting because from reading the book you learn more about chris and reagan and the background yeah. you even learn more about the secretary and about her life mm-hmm. and about outside that and it, it's it feels more balanced but when you yeah. definitely watch the film you're like yeah this this movie isn't really about reagan and being possessed this is about the priest coming in being a father figure to reagan getting the demon out of her and then they just move on with their lives so it's definitely about the men in this in this movie. It really is. And this also kind of blew my mind. And like, the movie is called The Exorcist. <laughs> the title itself does not talk about the women. It does not reflect the women whatsoever. Yeah. And in the title itself is showing you that this movie is not about Reagan. It is about The Exorcist, though that is singular, not plural. But it's about the men. Yeah. And again, I've always known it as The Exorcist. I never really thought much about it. Even on the goddamn cover, the poster art for this movie is Father Marin underneath its beautiful cover, but underneath that spotlight, the, the street light, making it a spotlight. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and then it kind of actually made me a bit angry because there's Reagan tied up to the fucking bed, dying, and, you know, Karis is figuring his shit out. And that's what the movie actually is about. And I'm very upset by that. (laughs) It's really messed up to me. And then there was that part part at the end when they're taking a break in the between different uh, exorcisms with her that night. That conversation between Father Karras and Marin, where Karras is like, I don't get it. You know, why this girl? Like, he's so upset by it. And Marin, who's so just wise in his age, he's like, it's a challenge our belief in, in God, you know, reject reject our beliefs that we are loved and that we are to despair. And I'm thinking, do you mean as humans overall, that's why possession happens? Or are you talking about yourself specifically, like you and Karis, you are to despair and that's why this is happening because you are priests and you need to have your faith regularly challenged to keep it strong. And yet there's so much more that as you continue on doing the research and finding more stuff about what people have written about this film, it just continues. 
It does. It does. It does. So what I'm going to talk about next is about Reagan and the Oedipal theory. So I read a couple essays about this, about this theory in regards to Reagan and how she has this complex and that is deeply focused around this deep reaction and resentment to her father's abandonment and her anger at her mother for causing it and that the father Marin and father Karras are the new father figures that are going to come in and they're going to save her and they're going to, you know, bring that father figure back into her life Mm -hmm. and so those were interesting articles but the one that I found really interesting was written by Alison Kelly and is called A Girl's Best Friend is Her Mother The Exorcist as a postmodern opidial tale Mm. uh, and she discusses how Reagan's possession is a sign of an impact of a child of divorce and competing for her mother's attention. To explain what the opidial complex is, is that children perceive themselves to be rivals of their same-sex parents for the affection of the parent of the opposite sex. And so in Reagan's case, her possession is a result of the manifestation of this complex. And this is because she is now a child of divorce and she was abandoned by her father figure. So instead of having to compete for her father's attention, she needs to compete for her mother's attention. So this is now focused around a same sex experience and it's all centered around her mother. And she views that anyone who could take her mother away from her as a threat. And so we see this in an element in the film where she talks about Brooke Dennings and she says to her mother, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, for my birthday, it's okay if you want to bring him along. And she's like, why would you say something like that? She's like, oh, well, things have been told, like, right? Like she's perceiving that, you know, her mother may have attractions to this director or she's Mm -hmm. built this friendship with this director that could eventually turn into like a love interest. Yeah. And in a way for a child like Reagan, where all she has is her mother and that is the focus of her life, it's kind of, it's a threat to her. It's a threat to that that bond. And one of the things that they brought up in this article is that Reagan's demon only kills men who are single. It doesn't go after anyone who is married or not considered a threat. And so Carl, the male servant of the household, he is mm-hmm. spared because A, he's married to the other woman in the household. It's not discussed in the movie, but in the book, it talks about how Carl himself, he is a father of a strung out drug addict of a daughter, wow. and he secretly is helping her throughout the book. So that right. keeps him from being, um, because he has, he's had multiple interactions with Reagan in her possessed state, and he comes mm-hmm. out unscathed That's each true. time. But the only people, and the same, yeah, and the same with Kenderman, when he comes in yep. to question Chris about yep. the possible uh, yep. murders, nothing happens to him yep. because he's a married man. But we have this sense that we know that with Brooke Dennings, he ends up getting killed by Reagan in mm-hmm. one of her possessed dates, uh, Father Karras. He's also a single man, and he's seen as a threat to Reagan and her relationship with her mother. It's not as explicit in the in the movie as said, but in the book as well. There shows that Chris kind of shows a bit of an attraction to Karis because he's not like your he's not your normal priest. He is yeah. a psychiatrist. He is a man who is rational. He's intelligent. He's a boxer. He's kind of good looking. So she can see herself like oh that I could see myself in the relationship with a man like that. And so the demon in Meg- Reagan, she's so perceptive as a child. She can sense that that mm-hmm. this man is a threat to her connection with her mother. Yeah. And so the manifestation of the of the demon within Reagan is her own anger towards being neglected by her own father. And so in in the article they connect 
uh, the naming of Captain Howdy mm. as a reference to her own father, Howard, and how oh. in certain aspects. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So, you know, and yep. at the same time, too, we see it later on, it's also discussed in the book, but I think there's also a part in the movie where they mention, like, why why haven't you told Reagan's father about yeah. uh, what has happened with Reagan? And Chris is like, well, that's just bringing another demon into her life. I, I don't need to do that, right? So mm-hmm. this is a reference to her father. So Reagan is harboring a lot of repressed emotions and resentments, and it provides the demon a place to take over and feed upon all that anger and resentment and, and bring it out and project it out onto these single men in her life. Yeah. What's also interesting, too, in uh, following this complex theory was this interesting side note about Father Karras and his guilt. So while Reagan is competing for affection of her mother and being the apple of her mother's eye and stuff like that, we have Father Karras has a lot of guilt about his own mother. The fact that mm-hmm. he's had to leave her alone in New York. She's living in an apartment. She ends up getting hurt. Yeah. He can't be there to take care of her. And because she's not there, she ends up being committed to a psychiatric hospital instead of a regular home. Yeah. And she ends up dying because of it. And he sees himself as a bad son. So he wasn't be, he wasn't able to be there for his mother. And so he struggles with that. And we see that the demon at the end takes over. Like, he feeds on that guilt. He constantly feeds on that guilt. And he's like... Yeah. You know, you're such a bad son. You know, you let your mother, uh, you, you let me die, um, Damien, Damien. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and, <That's> sad. <laughs> and so what we see is at the end of the film, when Father Karras tells uh, the demon and Reagan, take me, take me. It, what happens is what's seeing is like the film is now he's redeeming himself as the bad son by taking the demon out of Reagan mm-hmm. into taking it in itself and then taking his own life to save this young woman. So it's that same yep. interesting complex of that relationship with the mother. But for what was really interesting is that this was all focused for Reagan and uh, keeping maintaining that mm-hmm. relationship, that sacred bond that she has with her mother, because that's all she has now. Yeah. Um, Chris herself, yeah. as a mother, she's challenged. And I'm going to talk about this more later. I go into about Chris and uh, distressing the feminine instinct. But she has had to focus on all her time is spent focused on her career, not necessarily her daughter at the time. As we're seeing Reagan go through this ordeal, she's now being forced to balance her life and to give Reagan the time she needs to be a good mother to her. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, too, both of them coming to terms with the divorce and having the absence of a father figure in Reagan's life, which allowed the demon to come in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because within uh, The Monstrous Feminine, Barbara Creed goes into some incestuous aspects of mm. the possession which maybe reaching it, I'd have to read more about it, but I decided not to really mention it because that's like, I feel like a whole other kind of dimension to what's going on. Oh, um, Jesus, yeah. In that movie. Uh, but there is some, you know, information out there about that type of relationship. Uh, what you're talking about is definitely really interesting things that I hadn't even put together. It's amazing to have people like completely analyze every single aspect of the movie. That mm-hmm. whole Captain Howdy thing is mind blowing. You know, that whole thing doesn't, you know, explain why she is disgusting and is dying. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, but it's, it's- the, it's showing maybe reasons why she would be vulnerable to becoming possessed if that's actually, you know, what's happening. Yeah, and I will, obviously, I'll get into more when I talk about Chris, um, 
uh, further on in the podcast, but one of the things I want to bring up before we move on is when I was watching the film and you're looking for idea, you're looking for ideas and you're looking for things that are coming out. One of the things I picked up on is that when we, in the beginning of this movie, when we start seeing the possessions happen and it's happening kind of, and things are happening outside of the home and we see that scene where the desecration in the church mm-hmm. and the statue of the Virgin Mary is completely desecrated. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I remember watching this being like, there's all these other statues in the church and only one is desecrated and that is the statue of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Mother. Mm, yeah, and yet then yeah. and we see in reading this article and it was like, oh my God, light bulb moment. Yes, of course the Holy Mother was desecrated. The statue was desecrated because this, this is all like this idea around this whole anger and resentment that she has towards her mother, not giving her the time and attention that she needs. And it's right. all about mothers in this movie. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a definitely a good point. And then you could think of bring that back to, you know, the Virgin Mary being this symbol of purity. And then that is being desecrated because, you know, fuck women type deal. There is a part that horrifies me every single time that I watch this movie. Besides, okay, it's like when the first time she was like really gets kind of possessed, she's flying around on the bed, she whips her head back. And it's those anytime she has the white eyes. Okay. Oh, I just can take a moment to just kind of reel that in. And like, this is horrifying. But also, at the end, when Reagan is free and she knocks Karis onto the floor and she's rolling around on the bed, I'm like, don't roll off the bed. Do not, don't you dare roll <laughs> off the bed while he's on the ground. Can you imagine? I just think, like, that's what would be in my mind if I was Karis at that time. Being like, oh my God, don't roll off the bed. Even me just watching it, I'm like, don't roll off the bed. Because she's, you know, she's thrashing kind of back and forth. I'm like, oh my God. Still gets me. It still horrifies me each and every time. I also wanted to make mention of Chris before we carry on a little bit more with Reagan. Because, like I said, I seem to more identify with Chris now as an adult. I'm a child, but I'm an adult, you know, professional woman going about my life. And I just think it's so sad because she starts the movie off as so much like bounce and joy and beautiful. Mm. And then by the end, she's just so kind of haggard looking, dark circles under her eyes. She never smiles anymore. And she is just so feeling helpless because what she has tried definitely literally everything she could possibly do for her daughter that she's very bonded to and she loves and she wants to help her you know but she feels helpless because like in the end it's like i don't know i guess i need an exorcism i'm not religious whatsoever i guess this might help like what else because literally nothing else has helped and her daughter is dying so she's just this wonderful wonderful character and for me it kind of made me think about So she's like, she's the matriarch of the family. We're missing our quote unquote father figure. And there's that tumultuous relationship that she has with her ex-husband that we don't see much between like Reagan and her dad. Besides that, if you watch the director's cut there, Karis listens to a tape that she was making for her dad. Mm -hmm. He's just an absentee father, which is too bad. Chris is kind of deemed helpless until these two males, the priests come to restore order to her household. But what if this in this scenario there was a father figure like how would this situation have played out differently if at all which you know that kind of just got me thinking and i'm not really sure like would he have sought things differently would he have gone to maybe the exorcism sooner i feel like chris was pretty detail oriented in getting the the help that she needed but what if there was a dad in this you know in the household what would have been done sooner i'm not i don't know if anything would have do you have any thoughts on that 
Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about Chris herself as a character, as a as an individual. But it's interesting that you're bringing up like, oh, if there was a father figure in the household, how would things would have been handled? And it's interesting because we watched the last exorcism and we see a father figure handle how an exorcism, how uh, to deal with demonically possessed daughter. And it's not very positive. Um, but what's interesting is that. <laughs> It's interesting is because you learn a bit more about Reagan's father in the book and you end up finding out that one of the reasons why he got divorced from Chris was because he didn't like being in her shadow. Mm. He didn't like that her fame made it so that he couldn't have a career of his own, that he would always be known as Chris McNeil's wife. So you always like see that he was this Do individual who didn't like... Oh, sorry. Well, <laughs> well kind of in a way, he was like the wife because oh, he's a stay-at-home. Uh, he would be the stay-at-home, take care of Reagan, and she's the one out having her career, right? But yeah, she he would mm, always have been known as Chris course. McNeil's husband. Sorry, being to be correct, right? right? So he's living in the shadow of his wife's success. This is not a common thing in the 1970s, right? So you makes it almost makes you wonder, like, would he have just, yeah, yeah, you know, followed Carissa's direction and wouldn't have had much of a say, or maybe he would have stood up and said, no, I think yeah. this is batshit crazy. I think we need to have Reagan committed. Like, you can't, you know what I mean? Like, it could have gone either way if he had that father figure. You know, I guess if he was also not religious like Chris, that maybe maybe she would have just died. You know what I mean? He would have been like, no, an exorcism. We don't need any religious figures in this. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah, like this is dumb. I don't know. I just thought it was uh, something to kind of ponder over a little bit. So yeah, so like Kelly said, Chris is an interesting character. As a, is an interesting character, and like she's saying, like now as an older woman, I can relate to her more because you understand her struggle. And one of the things in my research was a couple points that were pointed to Chris is that we see this in the movie. It's talked more about in the book. But Chris is a successful actress. She's also a successful director. And that is where she wants to go with her career. And it's mentioned a lot in the book that she actually gets a really good opportunity to be a director for something. And she ends up having to put that on hold because of what's happening with Reagan. And it's uh, to her, it was like a huge kind of blow mm -hmm. to her career. But she's like, I have to do this for my daughter. Yeah. So with Chris, she is living outside the dictated role of a wife. And a mother. Mm -hmm. She is identified with her creative side, which is considered a part of her aggressive of the aggressive masculinity in women. And due to the lack of a male figure in the household, there's this giant vacuum and dark of in the darker negative aspects of masculinity that it would have been represented in her husband. This then becomes filled by Reagan because she has so many unresolved feelings of her missing father and her oncoming purity. She fills in this masculinity, but then Chris also has no other channel for this dark, apparent, aggressive masculinity within her because she is so focused on her career. As women become liberated from traditional roles, which Chris is, there's a sexual, psychological impotence in men and they feel threatened by this increasing aggressiveness of women. Mm -hmm. And this sense finds strong women often left on their own with no men around them to project the darker side of masculinity that then causes the inner masculinity women to rot and become devilish. Ooh. So what Chris experiences unconsciously as a liberated woman is then visited upon her child. And so they mm. bring up this concept of 
that it was Chris who started hearing the weird things in the attic first. Yes. We don't yeah. know if Reagan had heard any of these things, right? So we don't know if this is part of uh, Chris's own hysteria, mm-hmm. or maybe this is a part of the darker masculinity within Chris that is kind of filling that devilish void. Like maybe it could have been Chris that would it could have become possessed. We don't know because she's but because of where she's directing this energy. Yeah. And in and in the end, like right, yeah. it would seem make more sense for a child like Ray to become possessed because she's on the cusp of womanhood, and that makes you know from moving from being a pre yeah. from being a child to a woman there's this uh, sensitivity but almost like this weak weak point in a woman's life where you can go any direction right mm-hmm. i have this really interesting quote from the article that talks about a lot about chris and it's called uh, it's from the exorcist and the spiritual problem of modern women by thomas Kapuscin sacks pardon me and the quote is if modern woman looks within herself for her inner masculine mode and her darkness she benefits herself and enables men to find in her person the key to the creative feminine leading to a man's transformation and unfolding so in reference to this quote when we see what's happening to chris and reagan is this all about father Karis becoming a better man that through this experience of their dark masculinity within these women that they're helping him transform and, be- uh, and become the redeeming factor in their lives that the insertion of this unresolved spiritual problem within the masculine possession the masculine possession of chris and reagan that all it takes is a man to save them and so i found that really interesting in this article that at the end it, it ended up t- taking a man to save them well also one of the other things that, and I mentioned this in a couple blog posts ago, ago about distrusting the feminine and the distrusting the feminine instinct with women. And Chris yeah. knows that there is something wrong with her daughter. Yeah. And she goes and she talks to the doctors. She gets all the medical opinions and she brings up consistently, yeah. should I get a psychiatrist? And they're like, no, you don't need to do that. We'll just keep giving her medication. She'll be fine. Yeah. And she is a mother who knows that something is not right. And she knows that something is not well, but she has to keep being told, you go this direction, you go this direction, you go, and you know, you, and yeah. so you could understand her frustration because no one's listening to her. And then finally, when she goes to Father Karras and she's like, okay, the doctors are telling me my daughter's possessed. Yeah. I need you to come and do something. I need you to, to come look at her. I need you to come help yeah. her because, and even then he doubts her as well. And they don't say it so much in the movie, but they reference this a lot in the mm. book that Chris is exhibiting a form of hysteria. And this is why they're like, oh no, you need to calm down, Chris. We don't think this is a, this attempt. We'll do these uh, couple things, but we definitely do think she needs psychiatric help. But she's like, I've tried yeah. to get her psychiatric yeah. help. No one will listen to me before. Yeah. I've done it now. No one seems to know what's happening. And then what they want to do is they want to reference that because Chris is coming into this hysterical state that they're looking at Reagan's possession as really Reagan's hysteria being unchecked because of her father's abandonment and then being exacerbated by her own, her own mother's hysteria and then guilt around that, that it takes the arrival of a Catholic father to come in and exercise the demon to and then once again reasserting the patriarchal order within the household to yes. get these women in check to keep their hysteria down and make sure everything is good again another concept i'm sure we'll come back to time and time again but this woman knows this is somebody she birthed from her fucking loins she knows her daughter like this is not okay there is something not right with her yeah it's that scene where she meets up with Karis for the first time she's like I've seen 25 fucking doctors and nobody can tell me a thing but like something's going on can you please help me and I think that Mm -hmm. 
took a, an incredible amount of courage and vulnerability for Chris to do that because like you said she's this incredibly strong independent yeah. woman and like they're doing just fine without a father figure around you know what I mean like Chris is busy she's a wonderful role model and Sharon's around and like Reagan seems to be super happy doing her own kid stuff being an artist just doing her own thing and to have to come to a priest also she's not religious whatsoever she was yeah. very upset when she's found that cross in Reagan's room she's like who put this here like she was very much against that whole idea of and she calls them witch doctors right so she's like kind of even puts it down a little bit the the religious or spiritual aspect to everything she's so it took an incredible amount of courage for her to go to a priest and be like i need your help can you please at least come see my daughter and see and just like assess her and tell me what's going on because nobody is helping me it's a very upsetting like heartbreaking scene uh, I think for her and Chris is like I said, you know, it's somebody you can as an adult relate to as a kid, of course not. But as an adult, I just can I just have so much sympathy for Chris uh, in this movie. Well, especially because like you see her get pulled through the ringer with all this and you're like, in a way you feel like the the movie is punishing her being like, oh, because you're yeah. a liberated woman, you're a single parent raising a daughter yeah. on your own and you focused on your career. It takes your daughter becoming possessed for you to realize that you need to be more in the home and be more of a of your proper feminine role of being a of being a wife and mother. And we're gonna reassert that by having you know the pretty much the very symbol of patriarchy come into your home and exercise this demon to get it out, yeah. right? And yeah. so. Yeah. And that's where that other it's upsetting element that comes in the film that you're like, oh shit, this is this does not feel great watching this. No, it really doesn't. Uh, I read this article about this. Uh, it was called History Has Not Been Kind to the Exorcist by Amanda Marcotte. She like hates William Peter Blatty and like hates the exorcist. The only thing I wanted to take away was two different quotes from it, but I'll definitely link it in the in the Spinster's library because it's an interesting article, and that's where I learned that William Peter Blatty is apparently incredibly sexist, misogynist, and very religious. Very, very Catholic in a very negative way. So the two quotes, and it's one is related to Chris, is that, uh, quote, it's, it's not just that the mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, is basically blamed by the movie for bringing these torments onto her daughter's life by being a dis- disobedient woman. Mm. She's sexual, she's single, she's working and agnostic. Or maybe she's an atheist, but either way, she's not a traditionally religious woman. And then the other point, which is my new like life motto, is, quote, more importantly, Reagan's symbolic sexual maturity is shown as an all-consuming beast, destroying men and taking lives. <laughs> <laughs> that is my life. So going back to Barbara Creed a little bit. So when we come back to a lot of these possession films, we see them... These girls are, like Jess said, like you said in this, this transition between like girlhood and womanhood. It's about the time of puberty. Maybe the exercise is all about just puberty. Puberty is hell. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Legit. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's just angsty. <laughs> so there's that kind of, she was talking about how there's that threshold between girlhood and womanhood, that time where adolescent sexual desires, you know, start taking shape and expression and form. And Reagan's possession is aggressively sexual. 
And I noticed this when I was a teenager as well. It's interesting because she she makes mention that Reagan is possessed by or linked at least to a serpent devil who's the consort of Lamia, the snake goddess. So we start seeing Reagan kind of change. Her voice changes like a pubescent boy. It's kind of deep and guttural. And then her gender kind of becomes ambiguous. Mm -hmm. We talked about that strength, that deep voice. She just looks unfortunate taking away all ladylike behavior you know she talks about obscene things she says terrible things sexual suggestions to her mom shoves her mom's face in her crotch grabs a doctor by the testicles she actually becomes that castrating woman that we've talked about you know which is that figure that's designed to strike terror in the hearts of all men Reagan is monstrous because she breaks all those major taboos that are set down by the laws of the symbolic order kind of throws those all out to the trash Um, but those laws are there to help establish and maintain ourselves quote clean and proper body and then she just demonstrates that fragility of those laws and those taboos and Barbara Creed was mentioned that Reagan's possessed not by the devil by but by her own unsocialized body. That help me scene is really important because it makes clear that Reagan is trapped inside her own body and a prisoner of her own carnality because she is kind of out of control by this point. By that point, she is definitely done like a complete 180 to who she, she used to be. That scene where she says, do you know what she did, your cunting daughter, is a very confronting scene. And her transformation from that, like, sweet, angelic-type daughter into this, like, sexual, deviant, disgusting kind of character, you know, it's... uh, Barbara Creed was mentioning that it suggests that the family home, which is the bastion of all our rights and virtues and moral values, is built on a foundation of repressed sexual desires. Oh, and she mentions that flow between mother and daughter. So we're not going to get into the incest aspect of things, but... (laughs) You know, the Exodus shows just so many conflicts between different people, mothers, fathers, men, women, maybe science versus faith and and all of that. And like, I've seen this movie many times in 25 years. And I did notice that, of course, there is a sexual element, but I thought it was just more just the devil is being kind of naughty and not that it was anything necessarily more than that. But I also didn't really look that much into it it brings so much you know of that femininity the monstrous element the sexuality it's just been it's just really interesting so now we're gonna look at exercising the feminine so i finally wanted to visit and look at what the whole concept of abject is because I've looked into it before and I didn't really fully understand it but within the context of the monstrous feminine and the exorcist it's kind of making more sense to me so I'm going to talk a bit about the woman's abject body so the definition of abject is the abject represents that of which disturbs identity system and order it was written by uh, Julia Christievia all about the abject in the world and in horror. So, quote, the abject is placed on the side of the feminine. It exists in opposition to the paternal symbolic, which is governed by rules and laws. The rebellion is presented as monstrous yet immensely appealing. In this way, the, the film, so we're a little bit about the exorcist, is that the film represents the ambiguous aspect of abjection. Abjection fascinates desire, but must be in the interest of self-preservation be repelled. Reagan's behavior is outrageous yet compelling. The monster is alluring, but a confronting figure. And horror films generally restore order by the end of it. You know, status quo 
chaos has ended, normalization, the normativity of everything has, you know, balance has occurred. But how The Exorcist differs is its graphic, quote, graphic association of the monstrous within the feminine body. So analysis of the abject centers on the ways in which the, quote, clean and proper self is constructed. The abject is that which must be expelled or excluded in the construction of that self. In order to enter the symbolic order, the subject must reject or repress all forms of behavior, speech, and modes of being regarded as unacceptable, improper, or unclean. And signs like bodily excretions of urine, vomit, etc. needs to be cleaned up and removed from sight. That's Reagan. She vomits a lot of green pea soup everywhere. But that needs to be cleaned up. That's just showing how just, just disgusting she is. Reagan herself is abject. Abjection is constructed as a rebellion of filthy, lustful, carnal female flesh. We're talking about the feminine here. Uh, So possession becomes the excuse for legitimizing a display of aberrant feminine behavior, which, as we know, is depicted as depraved, monstrous, and abject. It's perversely appealing. We want to look away, but we do not. We are intrigued. We're curious, especially men. (laughs) We want to know more about these dangerous, disgusting women. We're into them. They're into them. And so with abject body, we can see the vulnerability of the human body, and then we can see its absolute destruction. The possessed or invaded person is a figure of abjection in that the boundary between the self and the other has been broken. Uh, When the subject is invaded by a personality of another sex, so often we see in possession films that it's like a male entity, or at least then the possessed show a lot of male traits, masculine traits. So then... When we're invaded by that personality of a different sex, then the transgression is even more abject because then our gender boundaries are violated. So in films depicting invasion by the devil, the victim is almost always a young girl, the exorcist, the last exorcism, exorcism of Emily Rose, many other examples. There, We see that invader is the male devil. So one of the major boundaries transversed is that between innocence and corruption, purity and impurity. Horror emerges from the fact that woman has broken from her proper feminine role. She has made a, quote, spectacle of herself, put her unsocialized body on display, and to make matters worse, she has done all of this before the shocked eyes of two male priests. So when it comes to my interpretation of exercising the feminine, one of the things that I came across in my research, on top of the close relationship between demonic possession and witchcraft, was this other interesting concept of how to differentiate between someone who's demonically possessed and a mystic. And where I relate this to exercising the feminine is that one of the most interesting conflicts historically was if women could be claimed to be actually divinely possessed or are they more likely to be demonically possessed and there was actually a lot of issues around women being canonized as either saints or martyrs and stuff like that because they're like oh wait a second like women don't have say in religious affairs women can't actually have those experiences so they have they have they would have to be demonically possessed there's no explanation for that So in my research, I show that there was many cases of stories of possession come from a lot of learned male members of the upper class and middle class societies, and particularly a lot of religious advocates who tell these stories about powerless and uneducated women who become demonically possessed. 
in medieval society, the sh they struggled a lot with how to identify if a woman was either divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, or they were possessed by demons sent to them by Satan, or by a witch through the work of Satan. So interesting enough, a lot of female mystics and a lot of uh, demonics shared a lot of similar external symptoms. They could levitate, speak in tongues, they would prophesize, they would bloat, they would enter trance-like states, they would have unusual body marks, they would perform miracles, they would become contorted. And the argument was for this was that that women's bodies were, and Kelly has talked about this earlier, are physically softer and more porous, you know, the various holes and porous skin allows for women to become and more easily possessed by a demon. Spirit possession is known to be predominantly among women. Cross-culturally, this is due to the belief that since women lack sanctioned avenues of expression, when they were able, they gravitated more to other means of, impression, of expression and increased attention, and as well as respect and social prerogatives. So interesting enough, in the 15th and 16th to 17th century, it was actually advantageous to claim that you were demonically possessed to be able to express yourself as a woman in the society than it was in any other shape, in any other forms. Because if you claimed that you were demonically possessed, you could be easily exercised and reintegrated back into society. Any other form, you'd be executed. You would have no other means to be able to express yourself. Well, at least, um, I guess when it comes to that, it's like, well, you're religious, so, you know, that's, you know, that's fine. That's, that's okay, because you're religious, so, because therefore you are a good person, because you're religious. So, if you've been possessed, we can help yes. you. Kudos for being, you know, having belief yes. in God. But on top of that, though, too, if any way your possession was shown to be fraud you could be mm. you could be executed as a witch so it was right. a very dangerous time for women to claim <laughs> demonic possession it was <laughs> in this essay by uh, moish uh, shuvazi titled a divine operation or demonic possession female agency and church authority in demonic possession in 16th century france looks at the in-depth uh essay of the demonic possession of the 16 year old girl nicole Aubrey in 1565 so what was really interesting about her was that she was uh, really young. She was recently married. She was a pious, uneducated woman who claimed to be visited by the spirit of her grandfather, who is trapped in, purg in purgatory, who is asking her to help a whole bunch of things to help be completed so that he could pass on into the other realms, which was complete his confession, do a bunch of pilgrimages. So this mobilized her family to do all these things for her grandfather, and the village kind of saw her as a bit of a mystic and a kind of like a bit of a medium. However, during that time, she started to experience involuntary seizures, and she claimed that she was being threatened by the spirit that he would turn her blind, mute, and deaf if she didn't fulfill all the requests. So after the family visited a bunch of local priests and they interrogated her, they said, okay, well, you're possessed by the devil and you're not being possessed by your grandfather. And so for two months, Nicole's exorcism was made a public spectacle. Catholic Church ended up doing this was a way to help enforce Catholic doctrine at the time because there was a whole bunch of Protestant uprisings happening in around the same time where she was living. So twice a day, she was religiously carried out to a stage where her exorcisms were performed publicly and she was heard to be speaking in gruff, frightening languages and revealing all of people's secrets and enforcing confessions of the people around her. 
and her seizures and her convulsions, they only stopped whenever she was fed the Eucharist. And at one point, Nicole was said to be possessed by 30 additional spirits and that because of the spectacle of her exorcisms happening in the public square, many people were forced to confess and also apparently a bunch of Protestants ended up converting to Catholicism. This was great marketing for the Catholics of the time. <laughs> However, prior to the whole spectacle of exorcism, Nicole and her family saw her as a divine messenger and... They never felt that she had any spirit in her, that she actually had the ability to allow of dead ancestors to communicate through her. Yet her body told another story because she started to exhibit signs of possession and she began to claim that she was possessed. And if she would not collaborate with the exorcist, she couldn't be cured and she couldn't be uh, integrated back into society. By looking at this, those who are possessed have to operate within restrained boundaries. They have to convince both clerics, doctors, inquisitors, exorcists, and other lay people that they are indeed possessed by a demon and not involved in witchcraft. This was very dangerous. And if these women were deemed to be possessed, it allowed for them to have a voice to speak their concerns, their anxieties, and tensions while being partnered with other members of the church to heal them. So they have to say that they're demonically possessed to say, we don't like what's happening within our families. We don't like what's happening religiously. So for me to be able to say I'm possessed and this voice is speaking through me that's having some kind of, that's making people confess, that's making people question their own moral authority and stuff like that. You're like, that's really fucked up. Most people who were possessed in early modern women in Europe were women and they all exhibited altered states of consciousness and they were able to bring about messages to their societies. By stating that someone else was speaking through them allowed women to participate in religious matters and theological debates that would normally be denied to them. These encounters as demonic possessions enable them to disclaim authorial responsibility for the content of their spoken word. So they can't say, so if they say something, and then they're exercised of the demon and they come back to say, well, you said this thing. And they're like, well, I was demonically possessed. That those words came from some, a being through me. It was never me, right? But it's just, it was seen as another means of women to be able to speak about their anxieties. It was also another means of way women were able to talk about their sexual anxieties mm. because most possessed lay women in the early modern France were women of coming of age. They were mm. on, the first, on the verge of first menstruation. They, got lo they were losing their virginities when they were getting married at such an early age. Nicole Orbe, her mother confessed that Nicole was, had became possessed one month after she started to bleed. And her family thought that she was pregnant at the first instead of possessed. Uh, sorry, it was revealed that she first became possessed seven months after her marriage and during her first pregnancy. So as Kelly has talked about a couple times in terms of the sexualization that we see in possession, a lot of implicit sexual gestures, languages, and accusations were all in common with the cases of possession. It has been argued that by women projecting their unvoiced sexual anxieties and sexual impurities, that menstruation and pregnancy during the lives of early modern European women were the highlight of Christian mistrust of the female body. Possession was able to first give women a voice to express their anxieties about sex, religion, family, and claim it was a demon making them do that. The exorcism allows them to distance themse themselves from what they say, ask for help, and then be reintegrated into society. These possessions allowed women to acquire a voice to speak and to draw their community's attention to religious and family transgressions that were happening at the time. But of course, women have to say that an external force made them say something instead of having the ability to stand up for themselves and that be able to say that they were demonically possessed to be able to have that exercised 
uh, gives them like kind of not that I don't want to say that that blank card that free pass but it was a kind of a means of protection to them as well right because if a woman was coming out and saying that just as a woman during that time period you're accused of a witch and you're burned at the stake you can't have independent women speaking out against uh, uh, authority matters that don't have anything that they that they're not part of the stage of conversation excellent and now we're going to get into our second film which is the last exorcism Exorcism is alive and well. Today, it's bigger than it's ever been. Reverend, I need you to do an exorcism for the soul of my daughter. Now, can you hear me? Yeah. Good, nothing to be nervous about. Where is Nell? In the fire. Do you hear that? Let's get out of here. If you can't save my daughter's soul, I will. Go, go! You should be compelled to leave this girl. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command me to be gone! Oh my God. That is a human. So, for me, I watched and bought... The Last Exorcism, a number of years ago, probably around the time that it came out. Um, I thought it was spooky. It was in a format I enjoyed. So, yeah, that's pretty much my story on it. I think now I've only seen it twice, uh, the first time then and then the second time for the podcast. So it's been a number of years since I revisited it. Uh, For me, this was the first time watched for the podcast. Like I said, don't typically watch possession films because earlier in life, I (laughs) had lots of belief uh, around demonic possession. And if you read my latest blog posts about demonization, you will hear more about my thoughts around that. First time. All right. So what I like about The Last Exorcism, I didn't like it as much a second time around than I did when I first saw it, though it's it's probably been like four years since I watched it. But I do really like the acting. I like the premise of it. There is a reference to the exorcist in it. I like (laughs) self-referential horror. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, that did a whole bunch for the Catholic Church, you know, (laughs) the release of the exorcist. So I like that. I thought that was kind of fun. I do really like the character of Father Marcus. Really? I I like him. Okay. Yeah. I like him because... He just seems very practical in his belief system. He thinks exorcism are a sham. He does fake exorcisms. He doesn't believe that they're they're actually real. I know that he is losing his faith. There is a crisis of faith element, which again, we see a lot in possession films, but I just think it's kind of funny and, and interesting that it ends up being like this placebo effect, but Father Marcus goes in and does all these exorcisms and he helps all these people. In the end, he's helping them. These people feel better. They go about their lives. They've been helped, maybe on kind of misleading means, but I just like how practical. He's like, I don't really think possession's a thing. I don't I don't believe in all of this. It's like that that whole scene of him in his church doing his sermon. He's like, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to recite a banana bread recipe and nobody's going to, nobody's going to clue into it. And they didn't because those people are so blindly following, right? And I just, I just, I really liked his, his kind of practical views on, on religion and everything. Um, how about you? I'm just going to make it really quick and simple. I didn't like the film. I disliked it. <laughs> All right. Well, what did you, I guess, dislike about it? 
what I disliked about it is I didn't like Father Marcus. I found him condescending and mm. very almost kind of full of himself. And I didn't like mm. his uh, attitude and the way he approached things and towards other people. I didn't like the ending. I did not expect it to go where it went. And when it went, it just ended the way it did. And I was just like, mm-hmm. meh. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't get behind it. I think that's a slightly <laughs> harsh view of the film. But, alas, you know, differing differing opinions. What I also like, which I didn't even mention, but I love found footage movies, so I love that mm. overall it um, was like a documentary, documentary style found footage film, but then what I don't like is that it con- kind of completely falls apart. If you're going to do a documentary style or a found footage film, you can't have music in it. Mm, because unless... It actually is a documentary in the end, but that's not how these work. It's, quote unquote, somebody has found this footage and this is the shit that they've pulled out of it. So you can't have background music. You cannot have a score. That takes me out of it because these people all died. So nobody was there to put the music in it. And there, there's like, there's, it's called B-roll shots. So there's shots of like, the outside of the house, just like a couple of seconds on the outside, more of like these atmospheric, like environmental shots. I was like, who's doing this? Nobody's doing this. They're all inside dealing with the the drama that is unfolding around them. So that just like really takes me out of the feeling of found footage. And then it, it was way too clean. It was way too clean and clear and pristine. It was like, well, the movie was shot on like, I think it's called like Panavision or Panasonic or whatever. Anyways, my partner is a film dude and he's like, only people with a lot of money can, you know, spend money on these types of cameras. So it was like a very, it was too high budget for me. <laughs> so it yeah. just looked, it was like way too clean. I want my found footage dirty. Come on, come on. Um, the other thing I didn't like is all these, like the multiple fake endings. I was like, stop going back to that house. <laughs> there is weird shit going on. You've done your thing. You got your money. Just leave. Just leave. You're done. Yeah, that's there's some really fucked up shit, especially after maybe the second time you went back to see what was going on. Just like, don't go back. (laughs) There's like some there's like some serious messed up stuff going on in that house outside of religion. So just just stop going back. And he's like, no, we got to turn this car back around. I'm like, oh, God, (laughs) I guess I wouldn't have a movie, but like, stop. Just either go there and stay there or leave forever. I don't know. Just make up your mind. (laughs) It's like how every horror movie could just end. It's just like, just don't go down there. Just go home. No. Call the police. Just go. Just don't do it. You know? (laughs) Totally call the police. He just said that he's going to kill his daughter. This is where you step back. Yeah. Call the authorities. I know it's a small town and small towns are weird and creepy because everybody knows each other. They trust each other and they don't take you first. They don't take you seriously. They're like, oh, no, he's fine. And he's Ed Gein. So it's like, what? just stop going back. Anyways, I'm rambling on. <laughs> but uh, all right. So let's, uh, I guess, get into more about The Last Exorcism. Yeah. So in doing my research about The Exorcism, I came across some interesting facts about the film because uh, I spent some time scouring the internet looking for some resources. But then also I was like, I was not a huge fan of the film. So I was kind of like, meh. Let's see what I come across. So interesting that the director wants to bring all about wants to bring realism to horror films, and that's why he likes to use the documentary style filming that he does. Mm. Uh, the demon failed miserably. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> the uh, demon Abalon is referenced in the mm. film, and he is a minor yeah. figure in Christian yeah. demon lore, um, considered yeah. the right hand of a more powerful demon called Paimon. 
Mm. Another interesting fact is that the actor Ashley Bell, she improvised her own exorcism during her audition, which Ooh. obviously they they end up li- liking about that. And the scene where we see that contorted backbend in Ugh. the um, in the barn yep. Yep. was not CGI. Yep. She could actually do that. And that's what makes the scene even creepier. They're like, they're asking her, they're like, how can we make the scene creepier? And she's like, oh, I could do this. And they're like, we're keeping that. (laughs) Sold. Stop doing that. So she's actually contortionist. And Kelly's like, fuck that. No, just don't. Uh, And then the other interesting fact was uh, that I found out is that one of the reasons about the ending is that they wanted to keep the ending to be ambiguous. And they were inspired by John Carpenter's The Thing. But I feel like John Carpenter's was a thing had a better ambiguous ending than this movie. Mm-hmm. Definitely much more ambiguous. I feel like this movie is this ending is actually very straightforward. Oh yeah, no, I don't see it ambiguous at all. I'm like, okay, so we end up finding out that the fam the, there's a ritual of uh, there's a satanic ritual, and that the pastor and all his people are all worshippers of Avalon, and that mm-hmm. really Nell was supposed to be the vessel in which Avalon would come into the world. Okay pretty straightforward it's but very I straightforward talking, <laughs> i guess they're talking about like the ending with father marcus and or cotton or uh, is it con marcus cotton anyway yeah. yep. they talk about how he goes up against the demon yep. right and sort of like oh yeah. we don't know if he dies or lives or if he fights a demon or if he dies or he doesn't we just know we just know that it's right. an ambiguous ending and that's as ambiguous as it gets yeah i'm sure he dies because you stand up against a huge fire demon, and I think, unless it's a Marvel movie, you're gonna die. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what took me out of the ending of this movie, right? It was mm. this CGI fire demon comes out, yeah. and I'm just like, really? Like, even when they jump the shark with the priest and all them being part of the satanic cult, I'm like, okay, I can get on board for that. So yeah, M- Nell was just an innocent victim of a possible rape. And once again, satanic panic using the concept of the fact that, you know, people are gonna, are satanic Satan worshippers and they're gonna take, um, they're gonna take babies and they're gonna, you know, mm-hmm. sacrificing the demons and yeah. for their worship. Okay, that, you know, I can go along with that. But then I'm like, a, a, de- a fire demon at the end? I was like, what? Okay. Oh, now we're jumping the shark. <laughs> I like my demons, so it was cool to me. Um, so I read this really great article. Uh, it was called Feminist Tensions in the Last Exorcism 1 and 2, because there is a sequel, folks. I haven't seen the sequel. Um, by Dr. Carrie Lynn Reinhard. So, fantastic article about these movies. <clears throat> And she goes along with saying a lot of the similar similar things that we've talked about. It's just that women in these possession movies actually are seen as both a victim and a monster. So they're a victim of this possession, but they're then monstrous because they're possessed and spooky. Women in exorcism cinema are seen as monsters due to the abnorm- due to the abnormality of possession. They're human yet demon, representing two distinctly opposed identities in one body. This monstrousness represents the tension between innocence and temptation as it relates to Western religious conceptualization of the virgin whore dichotomy. I love that dichotomy. Love it meaning Mm. I don't like it. It's ridiculous, (laughs) but it's so prevalent in our lives. So these tensions illustrate how the innocent virginal woman, as we see again in all these possession movies, these young women in the white nightgowns. So she's the victim to the whorish... Temptress, 
So this woman in her, in her article references Barbara Creed again, because while the spiritual crisis is central to the movie, and all these movies, there is a crisis from someone, it's secondary to the film's exploration of female monstrousness and the inability of the male order to control the woman whose perversity is expressed through her rebellious body. So the tension is not just about women's sexuality and expression of sexuality, it's that through this expression of their power and agency, this is enacted. And this is why their sexuality must be repressed. So through possession, they're able to finally express themselves, which we just talked about recently, is that they're finally able to have power and agency. They're possessed, but they have this. And then, of course, we have to just dial that back down. No, you can't have all of this openness and power of yourself and onto the world. You can't do that. You're a woman. So overall, you know, in this article, she argues that the use of demonic possession does not simply reveal the tensions that modern societies and cultures have about female sexuality, but it also demonstrates the tensions about women finding their own voice and power to take control of their lives. The possession metaphorically creates an empowered woman, but the exorcism metaphorically represents, in the form of the male priest, a protagonist who must remove the possessed woman and the threat that she represents to decent society. And I hope that makes sense. So you may actually seem to find some empowerment in being possessed because all these women, despite your age, you know, they're expressing their true thoughts, their true feelings about things. They're like, I have sexual desires and now I'm going to actually express them. But we have to be repressed. We have to, when men have to take that power and, and take control over our bodies, which, you know, we time and time again, we talk about. Reagan's 12 years old. Nell in this movie is 16 years old. So definitely older. If she's gone through menstruation, she's of a quote unquote, like sexual age, but she's sweet. She's devoutly religious. She's an artist, which, you know, like Reagan, who is adorably artistic, but she, unlike Reagan, actually does not have a mother figure. She died multiple years ago. So there's only men in her life. There's her dad and her brother. So her dad is a religious zealot who's a patriarch, and he's obviously very dominant. And talking about the dad. So, like you mentioned before, if there is a father figure, if he's super religious, it goes really terribly. So after the death of his wife and Nell's mom, the severity of his fundamentalist religious beliefs escalates. And it's more about repressing and oppressing the children, especially Nell. You know, we have to keep these women under control. What I found really interesting was like this quote. So Father Man- Manley is, or yeah, Father Manley is the uh, the priest who runs the church where they used to go because they don't go anymore because um, Lewis is the dad's name. So he doesn't take Nell to Sunday school anymore. Um, they don't go to church anymore. He does homeschooling, does everything at home because it's like, don't leave the house. Don't be, you know, influenced by external sources like I'm going to teach you everything you know, need to know about the world. So the quote that I thought interesting that stood out to me was when Father Manley says to Father Marcus, because he's going, he's like, Lewis is not taking what I'm saying seriously. I think Nell needs psychiatric help. Like, I think she needs help and like, I can't help her, but he's not listening to me. I think he would listen to you because you're a local dude. So Father Manley says, Lewis doesn't think Sunday school was medieval enough. And that's why he took Nell out of it. I was like, kind of enough said. He didn't think it was medieval enough because his beliefs are medieval. They are very, like, 1600s oppression. Yeah. 
This real that that quote really really stood out to me. Ugh. Yeah, her father I really did not like. He is not a likable man or character whatsoever. No, I definitely agree with you. Carrying on for Kelly's discussion there about Nell and her father. So yeah, Nell is a young 16-year-old woman and her father believes that she's possessed because she get, keeps ending herself up in mysterious situations that she can't really explain. And we know that her mother died two years prior from cancer and this was when uh, Nell would have been on the brink of womanhood. Mm-hmm. And she's had no female role model. She's had a father and a brother, but no one else. She's isolated from society. She's homeschooled. Her father um, believes that the only means of protecting her is to keep her locked away and isolated from all that, believing he believes in very, like you said, very medieval style of church practices. When he does believe that she is possibly possessed, he locks her up and chains her in and makes her really believe that you are bad, you are bad, there's bad things in you, there's bad things about you, we need to to cleanse you, right? And he doesn't believe in modern medicine because modern medicine couldn't save his wife. So his wife died all of a sudden, so... Modern medicine is evil, and the only way to protect his children is to keep them away from all that and, and put them in the hands of the Lord. My note on, just of course, because I'm a medically trained person, whenever there's anything yeah. medical related, when he said that, he's like, medicine couldn't save my wife. I'm like, dude, your wife had cancer. Yeah. She's going to die. Like, some people, yes, there's remission. It's nuanced. But I know you're upset that she died. But... Yes. It is the fact that we are human beings. We have bodies that decompose and that age and like we just die. So that was, I I found that very upsetting. He just like completely just shut down. He's like, well, couldn't save my wife. There's your anecdotal evidence that it's all bad. Well, and like you said, like he has such a medieval belief in religion Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. in terms of taking care of his children that when he cannot get out of his head that Nell, he's like, she is possessed by a demon. You did not get the demon out of her to begin with. So the the only way to clean her is to kill her. And Father Cotton's like, no, she is sick. There is something wrong. She is pregnant. We need to get her medical attention. He's like, nope, nope, she needs to die. That's yep. the only way yep. is I give her to God. And and I was like, oh, that's so upsetting. That was yeah. very upsetting. Like, just like, didn't even want to hear it. Like, and also it's like so hypocritical, just so hypocritical. Yeah. One of the things like I wanted to bring up in terms of talking about the last exorcism was this concept of the connection of demonic possession also to mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so one of the articles that I, I was reading about talked about how horror and psychiatry have a bit of an interesting relationship because in a lot of horror films, we can see a lot of ways mental illness can be portrayed. And when it comes to the dem- demonic possession genre, we see a lot of times the I- seizures and cytosizers seizures being used a lot often to portray demonic possession. And there are actually quite of a few psychotic disorders that can be confused with demonic possession, which is mania, Tourette syndrome, conversion disorder, hysteronic personality and disassociative identity disorder, and epilepsy. And so what is interesting is that with the the rise of exorcisms after the release of The Exorcist in the 1970s, Mm. the decade of the 20th century and the 21st century, a lot of exorcisms have been reported to be performed by amateur exorcists and even family members when they believe their children show signs of demonic possession due to manifestation of physical or emotional or mental illness. 
And so this wow. is where this lack of education coming from and this understanding of, you know, the differences between demonic possession and what mental illness is and how they're very in similar cases. And earlier, and actually in the beginning of the month, Kelly talked about her monthly pick of The Exorcism of Evelyn Rose, mm-hmm. which is based upon the true case of Annalise uh, Michael. And we all know this case is very pop- very prominent, very popular. You know, a young woman in Germany who was actually diagnosed with epileptic psychosis. She had a history of being treated for psychotic treatment for depression and because she started to show um, intolerant signs to religious objects and was suicidal mm-hmm. and because her treatments of all of her illness was quite unsuccessful people end up started turning to this idea that she was demonically possessed and based mm. upon her own delusions you know people started to believe that and undergoing 67 exorcisms dying of malnutrition and mm-hmm. dehydration see people being held um, responsible for that but at the same time too their sentencing was also very lenient in the tense of like oh six months of jail and then if her parents never actually sentenced for anything because they're like oh you suffered enough but still interesting enough that Annalise's grave is seen as a site of pilgrimage for a lot of people who believe in the power of exorcism but not really and so it was like a um, an interesting and popular case because it's like here's this case of like someone who believed they were possessed but really it's like this huge case of treatment of mental illness and how people are being treated and how I remember reading a couple times back in my days when I was studying for history um, and particularly in when a lot of my medieval courses a lot of times where people who were mentally ill were treated like they were demonically possessed mm-hmm. or vice versa. Yeah. And and this is how this taboo around mental illness has been able to grow and just kind of inseminate into society because it would just only make sense, right? That the the brain has betrayed you, so of course the body would betray you and and at the end of the day like all oh, the only way to to save you is to be able is to, like, the mean is to explain that oh there's a demon taking you over and this will make you do the things that you're doing. And so this is why a lot of times we see historically people who are demonically possessed or considered medically insane they're not typically held uh held trial for criminal procedures because you can't because they have no control of their body or the or the what they're doing or their functions that in connection with demonic illness and possession is that when i watched the film like the ex the last exorcism and i see what's happening to nell you know she is probably experiencing depression she has been isolated from her family and from mm-hmm. people oh right so she's probably experiencing some sort of dissociative disorder in the sense that she has no mother figure in her life so she does not understand what's happening with her body yeah. and how it's changing she's pregnant so mm-hmm. she's probably experiencing signs of what it feels like to be pregnant so of course she's going like that the whole idea of female hysteria is coming up again she's clearly needs some psychiatric help and father cotton brings that up i'm like she needs psychiatric help yeah. she even herself she's a 16 year old child and she acts like she's 12. yeah and you're like yeah yeah she definitely right? has not very hasn't really matured yes it's like, like her artwork her drawings like the way she's drawing like the way yeah. it's, it's all done it's like the, those that's the artwork of a child yeah the way you're you know being portrayed so yeah i think it's this really interesting connection and concept and that one of the articles i was reading about modern day how they approach um exorcisms now is that you know officially in 1999 the catholic church ended up updating the rights of exorcism ritual to have uh, exorcists being trained on how to identify between what is mental illness mm. and what are supernatural forces oh in boy. response to the increased number of possessions that were being reported from the 1960s and on. Oh boy. And often a lot of modern day possessions have been seen to be the result of development of feelings of sinfulness, mm-hmm. sexual anxiety, or self-loathing. This is that confessing that being possessed by a demon that sins and actions of the possessed be, can be cleaned and removed through the rite of exorcism if and it also renews their faith in religion and its mm. authority 
authority and domain over evil. It's really sad because the the our brain is infinitely complicated and we can experience so so much and that can manifest in a variety of different ways. I personally don't believe in possession. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, our minds can do some incredible things. You know, if you think about people with all these vast variety of diagnosed, categorized mental illnesses and how they deal with trauma and everything with regards to PTSD, just what oppression and manipulation physically and mentally can do to our mind and how it can change how we act and what we say and who we are. It's really sad that they're, you know, that these religious folks are going to just easily just swing that to, oh, you're possessed by a demon. That makes sense. That's like a logical reduction of reasoning. I would say it's a lack of actual reasoning. Yeah, and it would make sense why it gets pinned upon the feminine experience more often than not because women, we already bring so many complications into the lives of others by just being women, apparently, that if we start exhibiting unusual behavior or things that we don't consider it to be of 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 normal society measures, it's like, oh, then you're mentally ill. And if you're not you know and if you're mentally ill but they can't cure you within a certain length of time yeah right yep yep. you can't cure you within that year's time then clearly there's something more further wrong with you so you're probably demonically possessed we need to perform an exorcism (laughs) on you right instead of actually continue with what could be many many multiple years of treatment and I remember when you brought up uh, earlier a couple weeks ago the film the demon and then from the 1960s that you talked about yeah about In one of the in one of the articles that you're researching, and I remember thinking all throughout my research, I kept thinking about that film, right? Because right. That, oh, it was God. an interesting film because it represented so many ways in which she's accused of being a demon, she's accused mm-hmm. of being a witch, she shows signs of mental illness. It's, it's this whole combination of things, and like, and she's honestly, she's just a woman who was in love with someone, she was rejected, she doesn't know how to handle that rejection, she doesn't know how to handle yeah. being. Um, ostracized from her society from her from her people and so she's just she's doing all these outlandish things when really she's just being a strong woman standing up for herself or yeah but like or she's having these experiences and people just keep labeling all all these things that's just trying to fit her in a box so they can understand how they need to interact with her yeah and then of course i couldn't help but laugh have the time where they're just like oh they're accusing her of being a witch but yet they're practicing (laughs) these really crazy weird rituals in their own oh my goodness but i'm like wait a second you're accusing her of being demonically possessed slash a witch yeah but yet you're outside in these fields yelling at the clouds not to rain oh boy does that make sense no (laughs) well now you're saying that people that have these religious beliefs are logical and no offense to anyone but that's not often the case that's kind of the whole point of blind faith so thinking about mental illness, hysteria, women acting abnormal, and then therefore they're probably possessed or something serious is going on. It's like, I actually flashbacked to a time today where I acted very incredibly abnormally. So I was in a problematic relationship with a terrible ex-boyfriend in high school. You'll know who this is. Oh, who's Taylor. I know who this is, um, yeah. Yep. And... He was a liar and he was sneaky and he was emotionally manipulative. 
that I acted really as, as per his words, crazy. Bitches be crazy, right? Because of all those things, it just, just turned my mind and my emotions into this, well, kind of like a monster. I would throw objects at him. I would hit him. I would scream. I would cry. Like, not hysterically, but this, like, cry out of frustration. And from the outside observer, I was acting crazy. You know, I was acting hysterical. I have not once, okay, not before then, nor since then, acted that way. I have not. I recognize that that was truly a moment in time where I was not of myself because all of these external things were happening. And also, why do we get into problematic relationships when we're at our most vulnerable? I want to know that. That's for a later (laughs) date. But, uh... I'm going to go back to the whole, like, the duality of the virgin and the whore. Now, Reagan, the victim monster, as a, you know, a threat to the proper order of society. These women, of course, seen are, they're abnormal, need to be expelled. And back to the, the feminine tensions of The Last Exorcist. So, in this article, you know, she argues that there is a struggle that that uh, is between the feminine innocence and the sexuality that patriarchy fears and we have to control. So what's interesting, because The Last Exorcism is done through like a found footage type format. So in this article, going back to like the feminist tensions in Last Exorcism 1 and 2, the, the author was talking about how, so as a viewer, we have the ability to know that the world is through the camera, like the lens, because it's a film, right? It's through the found footage. So whoever controls the camera controls how the viewer experiences the world. And that's what found footage is like. That's why I love it. It's so interesting and I find it so scary. And and that's the power. And that's kind of the power that we can see in this film. So for the majority of the film, Nell is without power. She's continuously silenced, even as, okay, even as her words, like during the exorcism attempts, they're challenged for being fake by Father Marcus. He's like, no, these are just, you're just a scared little girl. This isn't real. You're not really possessed. You know, you're just afraid. And we're seeing it, we're just seeing her through the eyes of, you know, whoever's holding the camera, which is that unknown dude holding the camera. Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, Nell is merely just a vessel, either for her father's wishes, the demon's wishes, or the cult's wishes, and she has no control over her body, or does she have any power? But there's a moment where she actually takes the, and steals the camera, and then we're seeing the world through her eyes, <gasps> uh, is where she kills the cat, yeah. but she is a conduit, and that word is thrown a little use a lot when you talk about possession horror that women are used as this conduit for whatever the over, like, the overarching crisis or overarching end result that we want out of the possession out of the movie so in the last exorcism she's used as a conduit to release a demon onto the world and you know what when it comes down to that's kind of the true horror right Mm. and i know we'll talk about this in a future episode but the true horror rather than the possession being horrific because actually this movie is not that scary in the sense that it's not that spooky there's not a lot of like possessiony weirdness going on it's very very light in that it's actually very light on the horror yeah but rather than the possession the pregnancy actually represents a real threat to mankind but again that threat still deals with Nell's up and coming and blossoming sexuality which is then tied to the power of the woman being the life giver. And we could even bring this all back to, you know, when we talked about women inherently being evil and Jess's post about dangerous women. And when we talked about 
um, when I was talking about satanic feminism with um, the Prince of Darkness episode, but all comes down to women being evil. We're going to bring evil into this world. We're a life giver, but we're going to bring monsters into this world. Uh, so back to this article. So she was the article. She was saying that the tension, however, is that any life could be a death bringer, such as Nell's demonic offspring. It is up to the priest to ensure that this danger does not harm the world. And that's where we get kind of that weird ending. Does it like does shit get real? And this, you know, demon is released onto the world, but it comes back and we look back into Father Karis, Father Marin coming in. Reagan is not pregnant, but she does have a demon inside her that can manipulate and do harm on this world. Nell is pregnant with a demon baby, which can bring harm into this world. And we need these male priests to come in and control the situation, return everything to normalcy, bring chaos back to order. We, in the end, still need these men to help mankind, humankind, from from harm and from danger. Reverend Marcus, I hear you don't believe in me. So now we're going to get into our spinster's final thoughts. So yeah, so my final thoughts is that this has been a very interesting month for me. I've had a lot of my previous beliefs around demonic possession and cons- ideas and even fears challenged this month in uh, the films in the films that I've watched, in the articles that I've read, that I've researched. I found it very fascinating to see how there is such an intertwined con- uh, history between the ideas of demonic possession and witchcraft and female independence you know, how this concept of women couldn't claim to be spiritually possessed by like the Holy Spirit and bring about message of religious importance because, you know, they have to prove that they're not possessed by a demon because our bodies are apparently porous and weaker and we are more susceptible to demonic energy than we are to, to holy energy. And watching the film, like watching a film like The Exorcist, we know this is a classic in the horror canon that The Exorcist is like, you know, for all horror fans, you need to watch The Exorcist. This is a scary film. But now as an adult woman watching this film, yeah, it's scary. You know, the concept of demonic possession, um, watching it is scary, but I think just like the message of how once again we're repressing the the feminine experience is even scarier you know and how much these characters represent so much of what the female experience is between becoming women going through the experience of menstruation becoming liberated women when we have our our own beings being repressed by other people like our fathers because they don't want us to be a certain way so the only way that we can act out is through being demonically possessed and that's why and so we can get away with the things that we do because someone else has taken over our body but then when Kelly brings it back this is showing the monstrous feminine and once again we can't show the monstrous feminine because no one's gonna like us and we're not gonna be seen as uh, pure beings in which you know and so we all will always need these male figures to come in and save us and rescue us and to uh, take over to help uh, take on the demons or the monsters that we bring out into the world which I think is a load of shit pardon my French but so in terms of like just wrapping up my final thoughts I've had a lot of my own concepts and ideas change around the concept of evil demonic possession and Satan himself and I definitely will be exploring the scene more further on in our explorations and research and we'll probably definitely more than likely touch upon demonic possession in some shape or form further into the future because there is still so much more to talk about I didn't grow up at all in a religious household I personally have not experienced any direct religious control or intolerance. 
like I said early on in the episode, I do believe that the oppressive patriarchy was founded upon Christianity thousands of years ago. And of course, I have been oppressed by this as a woman. I have the utmost sympathies for those that are affected directly by religious control and intolerance. I do urge folks to read Jess's recent blog post called Demonization. It's very moving. It's very upsetting. My thoughts on demonic possession. Please see my monthly pick on the exorcism of Emily Rose. But as an atheist, I do not believe in demonic possession. If it is real, that is scary as hell. And that challenges my beliefs. And I think just overall, the the concept of possession challenges all of us. It is almost incomprehensible thing to understand. Uh, The readings into exorcism cinema are surprisingly fantastic. And I have learned so much. It's been such an interesting month. And I really recommend folks to check out articles that we've referenced in even more. There's so much out there. There's even like a couple that I looked at that were fantastic, but for sake of timing, I did not talk about. But it's fascinating and deeply disturbing. And honestly, out of all the themes that we've explored over the past year and a couple of months, possession and witches have been some of the most emotionally upsetting, I think, for both of us. Just their representations of, of women in horror cinema and just the, the, the readings underneath and the oppression, which for both stem very directly related to religion, westernized religions. You know, exorcism cinema has been in my life forever, and I did not realize that it was so profound. And what I love about Spencers of Horror is that we research and we explore all aspects of horror, and we're constantly learning, our perspectives changing, hopefully helping others to maybe change their perspectives, see things in a new light. It's been great to look into, and it makes me kind of want to revisit a whole bunch of other possession films that I've seen, because I've seen almost all of them. Really, I have. I love them, and I want to see them. And, you know, there's very few that aren't focused around a woman, like the right. So the patriarchy, witches, and the monstrous feminine have been and will continue to be common elements that we discuss and explore because it is so prevalent in horror, in our lives, and I think it really deserves to continuously be explored. Yep, Sydney also agrees. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to Barbara Creed on The Exorcist, this film's exploration of female monstrousness and the inability of the male order to control the woman whose perversity is expressed through her rebellious body. Perhaps female possession is just truly a rebellion against the patriarchy because fuck this, we've had enough. And this is our expression and this is how we need to be heard is... Either we are inviting demons into our body or it's not at all demonic possession and it is all just a manifestation of our mind and we're creating it with our bodies. Either way, there's power in women and it's an absolute shame that it's still being suppressed. What I've learned is that in possession films, it teaches us that women need to be tamed mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And I disagree. So that ends our episode on Possession Horror. Thanks, everyone, (laughs) for listening. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for all of his hard work on our promotional materials. Of course, to all of you supporters, fans, and listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. We're also on Facebook, Spinsters of Horror. 
You can also find us on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and any other podcasting app you listen to us on. And just a reminder, we do have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop. We also now have a donation button located on the main page if you'd like to contribute and help support our goals as spinsters. Next month, we're going to rock out with our socks out and cover heavy metal horror. We'll be looking at the movie Deathgasm and the wonderful Canadian TV show Todd and the Book of Pure Evil. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female. 